0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's earnings season in America, and it's unlike any other. How has the coronavirus left S&P 500 companies in its wake? Hello, you're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Simon Long, an editor at The Economist. And coming up on today's show, Germany is the engine of Europe's economy. The coronavirus is a spanner in the works.
1: The economy shrank by 10.1%. That's the deepest drop in half a century. And could
0: central banks ditch cash in favour of virtual money? You have more and more money
2: moving into effectively private hands, whether it's run by Facebook, as Libra would be, or run by Tencent or Alibaba. And so they're looking to stop the digital networks from becoming omnipotent in a digital currency world.
0: It's been a rocky year for American companies. The lockdown of citizens and shutdown of production caused by the pandemic has left many firms languishing. In the midst of the corporate earnings season, this, along with rising joblessness, has cast a shadow over Wall
3: Street. This is a a bizarre period to be watching American companies.
0: Vijay Vaitheeswaran is The Economist's US business editor.
3: Nearly a third of all profits generated by companies worldwide were generated by American companies before the COVID crisis and pandemic-induced recession arrived. But what we've seen is that this global phenomenon has hit American companies particularly hard. So
0: it seems fair to say that the mood must be fairly bleak, to put it mildly.
3: The mood is definitely sour in corporate suites in America. A recent survey done by the Conference Board, which is a research organisation of CEOs globally, found that American CEOs are more pessimistic about both the economic outlook as well as when their firms will return to pre-COVID levels of profitability than European bosses and certainly Chinese bosses who are more positive. In America, at least several more quarters of depression uh, in the mood of uh, CEOs, but also recession in the economy looks likely for many of the sectors, not all, but many of the sectors that have been hit.
0: Indeed, amidst this general depressing outlook, what has struck you most? What results have stood out for you as as emblematic of the way things are going?
3: What we find is a a varied picture. We see some companies that are doing extremely well, some sectors, others that are doing particularly poorly, and then some clouds on the horizon that are arising from, for example, uh, the political outlook, it's an election year, call them the good, the bad and the ugly. The good tends to be the technology sectors and internet and related sectors that have benefited from people staying at home, being online more, watching more Netflix, and so on. You actually find that the top five technology companies account for over a fifth of the valuation of the Standard and Poor's Index, the main uh, index of big companies. And if you bundle together the so-called technology, media, and telecoms, TMT companies, over 40% of the value is from that relatively small sector of companies, a greater share than before the dot-com bust in the year 2000. That's good in the sense that there are companies with strong growth prospects and revenues and profitability and low debt, companies like Alphabet, which owns Google, Microsoft, which has been doing very well, But that's also bad in the sense that concentration of uh, such value in a handful of companies also leads to risk. Any one of them or several of them stumble if they encounter regulatory challenges from Washington or Brussels. We can imagine any number of problems that a small handful of companies could encounter that could lead to a, a much steeper fall in valuations. And what about the bad and the ugly? Well, the bad, we see a two-track economy. Big companies, broadly speaking, have done better than small companies. Although, again, it varies. Energy industry is battered by high costs and low oil prices, for example. Even a company in the auto industry, which is not doing very well, Ford has just announced they're swapping out their CEO for a new man in an effort to, to revive their fortunes. But broadly speaking, big companies have the resources, they have the access to bank capital, they've been able to issue shares or secondary issuances and get debt. And they've been able to tap government money from the Federal Reserve and other sources, whereas the vast majority of small companies in America are doing much worse. And profit forecasts looking a year ahead show that small and medium enterprises are anticipated to do much, much worse than the bigger companies, regardless of sector that they're in. And that's bad. Uh, Small companies tend to hire most of the Americans and ultimately also fire them, unfortunately, in this crisis where we have many millions who are out of work or furloughed. And so I think that's the bad. And some of those companies, indeed, many of those companies may not make it another six months. They don't have the working capital. They don't have access to the forms of loans. And they don't have the lobbyists in Washington to secure government help that the big companies do.
0: And look at the other way, what Bright spots in the results have surprised you. Which sectors are doing especially well or unexpectedly well? You mentioned tech.
3: Right. So we'd expect anything that would benefit from the internet economy Binge watching shows and so on to do well, and they are the Netflixes and the, the sort of the Microsofts and Googles are doing very well. It's not a surprise that the uh, companies that make cleaning products, uh, Procter and Gamble, makes soap and detergent, and so on, they're doing very well. But some of the surprises uh, we're seeing uh, Hugo Boss and Louis Vuitton seeing a turnaround in sales. So it could be that after um, months of working in uh, t-shirts and shorts, that maybe some people are feeling that they want to dress up or treat themselves to some nice luxurious fashions. Well, even they're dressing
0: they up for Zoom. The top's going better. Than exactly,
3: exactly. Well, that, that would be great for everyone. We're all tired of looking at the same top, so perhaps uh, we'll see an upgrade in our Zoom calls.
0: And as you think about the future, uh, Vijay, clearly this is a hugely uncertain time for everybody. But what sort of trends are you looking at that might tell us which way we're going?
3: This is an election year. Generally speaking, election years are good for equities. Analysis of the last 20 presidential election cycles in the U.S. finds that 18 out of 20 were good years for stocks, except when you were in a recession going into the election, which unfortunately is the situation today. So this does look to be a a challenging year if history is to be a guide. But beyond that, we do have a stark choice between what looks to be President Trump and the the presumptive Democratic candidate, Joseph Biden. We've seen very different policies put forward by Joe Biden on, for example, corporate taxation, which may reverse some of President Trump's uh, large corporate tax cuts that were seen under his administration. We'd probably likely see a rollback on the deregulation that was implemented under President Trump. And so the corporate sector is watching anxiously to see what might be implemented versus what might be rhetoric on the campaign trail. And so we're um, seeing a moment in which we might very well see a very different pattern for American capitalism and for USA Inc. emerging from an election in November. And broadly speaking, It looks like it would be the antithesis of the business-friendly approach, even cronyistic approach that's been seen under the Trump administration. There is a counter-argument that I would say, don't just um, put your bets on one camp for business. We have seen President Trump's policies be quite erratic, for example, on trade. And so there are analysts and business leaders that I talk with who are saying, we may very well see Let's say, higher corporate taxes under Joe Biden, but we might actually have steady and sensible policies on trade and global relations that are going to be better for our supply chains. And it's a surprise factor that's been catching us out and the uncertainty. So I think that range of uh, options is uh, leading businesses to really scratch their heads as CEOs are not sure what's coming next.
0: Vijay Vaithaswaran, thanks very much. Thank you, Sara. You can read more from Vijay in the next issue of The Economist. Head to economist.com slash podcast offer to subscribe for your best introductory offer. Next. American businesses aren't the only ones feeling the pinch. In terms of infections, Germany has been less affected by the virus than some other places in Europe. But this hasn't stopped the coronavirus taking its toll. ernst. Nehmen Sie es auch ernst. In March, Chancellor Angela Merkel called on German citizens to come together to beat the virus. Germany, which has just reported a 2.2% drop in GDP during the course of the first three months of the year. Germany
3: has unveiled the biggest stimulus package in its history.
0: As a leading exporter, Germany's been hit hard by the disruption to international trade, and the country's latest figures suggest it's in a serious slump.
1: The downturn of the German economy is very sharp.
0: Wendelin von Bredow is our European business and finance correspondent based in Berlin.
1: On July 30th, the German Federal Statistics Agency announced that the economy shrank by 10.1%. That's the deepest drop in half a century and some think it's the deepest basically since the end of the Second World War. It's a very serious moment for Europe's biggest economy.
0: So clearly business has been bad, but what sorts of effects are we seeing? High unemployment and so on?
1: Nearly all or most German businesses have been affected by the pandemic. The exception are maybe food retailers and pharma companies that are doing okay. but more or less all other businesses have been affected. However, unemployment has not increased or has hardly increased ever since the pandemic started. And the reason is a state-financed short-time work scheme whereby the state pays the bulk of workers' wages for a determined amount of time so that companies can keep the workers on staff, don't have to sack them. And the idea is, of course, that once the economy picks up again, You know, they will still have their staff, they'll still have the workers and they can restart producing quickly rather than having to rehire people.
0: So it sounds as if the government response has been quite effective in limiting the economic damage.
1: It seems to be the case. I mean, it's probably too early for a verdict yet, but uh, for sure the government launched basically the most comprehensive and wide ranging rescue package for the German economy since the end of the Second World War. It's also one of the most generous fiscal packages in the world. Something like 130 billion euros will be directed at just basically keeping the economy afloat. And what
0: about the EU's own huge stimulus package? Does uh, German industry and the German consumer see that as just a cost, something German taxpayers are going to have to help pay for? Or is it also a, a benefit to the German economy?
1: Well, German taxpayers are absolutely worried about the cost because Germany will be the biggest contributor And, you know, the scale of things, 700 billion euros, which is the EU package, is just, I think it's probably hard to imagine how much money that is. On the other hand, of course, because Germany is such an open economy and because it exports a lot to its European neighbours, it will also help German companies to sell their wares. So they will also benefit and some say even benefit hugely hopefully, from the rescue packages. But I think what's scary for most people is just the scale of things and the scale of debt that's being taken on.
0: And how does Germany's economic performance compare with its European partners? Has it done better or worse?
1: Well, generally, Germany has done better than other big European countries. I mean, it's grim news for everyone. But France, Italy and Spain reported even sharper contractions than Germany, so in Spain, for instance, the economy shrank 18.5% in the second quarter. And in France, it was 13.8%. I mean, these are, these are unprecedented contractions in the post-war history.
0: As you mentioned, Wendling, Germany's a leading exporting nation. What does the slump
1: in its economy say about the rest of the European economy, Germany is basically Europe's locomotive. So if Germany is in trouble, then so is the rest of the continent. That's why there is so much hope related to that big stimulus package, because it will help Germany, but it will also help everybody else. And leaders decided that it's worth the huge debt and the effort they are making. There have been divisions, of course, as and we've written about it, the frugal Nordics and They have been at loggerheads with the southern states, but they found a compromise. And generally, it's seen as a big step forward and hopefully the right cure for the COVID pandemic.
0: Is there a sense now, Wendling, that things have hit bottom and that the economy in Germany is on the way back up?
1: Oh, yes, very much so. I mean, you can see it in the way people are behaving in the street, but you can also see it in figures. So the retail sales um, jumped by 12.7% 12.7% in May employment has held steady as we already said and just today the PMI the purchasing managers index has been out for the manufacturing sector and it shows a rebound in manufacturing there's a sigh of relief and there's great hope that it'll be a v-shaped recovery that things are really looking up now but of course all that depends on whether there is a second wave of covid-19 infection and whether the economy will be shut down again. But the second thing is that I think people say they can't take another lockdown. So even now, if there is a second wave, I think the thinking here seems to be that one will try to not lock down the economy and almost you know, opt for a Swedish solution to what lies ahead. But of course, we don't know yet and nobody knows.
0: And how much concern is there about that? Do people f- feel that they are on the brink of a second wave?
1: There's great concern by policymakers and a great concern by the scientists and the epidemiologists and virologists. But there doesn't seem to be the same amount of concern among the general population. I mean, there are always people who are very cautious. But you can see lots of people just not wearing masks anymore and gathering in big numbers. And that's why there have been outbreaks of infections across Germany. There have been hotspots and not only slaughterhouses and places like that, but just um, mainly parties socializing. And that's of great concern because... I think the population is so tired of, of all these restrictive measures that they just sort of, there's a sense we can't really be bothered anymore. And that complacency is of great concern to policymakers.
0: Vendeline from Bedo, thank you very much.
1: Pleasure, Simon, as always.
0: In last week's Money Talks, Ratana Chambog investigated the transformation going on in how central banks manage economies. Their traditional tool of cutting interest rates seems to have lost its power. Even before the pandemic, interest rates had been rock bottom for years, but inflation and growth remained stubbornly low. So as countries consider the long road to recovery, economists are searching for new approaches.
3: Interest rates have already been cut
0: more or less to zero. Where do you go from there? Ken Rogoff is a former chief economist at the IMF and now a professor at Harvard.
3: I have advocated the possibility of using negative interest rate policy rates. And if it does create inflation, I think it would. I think that would be a very good thing, redistributing money from creditors to debtors.
0: But to bring deeply negative rates from the realm of monetary fiction towards reality, the financial system would need to change dramatically. One such change could be Central banks creating their very own digital currencies.
2: The fact is we know that payment systems are migrating online. You know, mobile payment is becoming more and more popular, certainly in China where I am, but but throughout the world.
0: Simon Rabinovich is our Asia economics editor.
2: If these payment networks were to be hacked, that would damage the integrity of currency. And so I think it's important that central banks know that they have some kind of fail-safe digital alternative. The second risk is is that the digital platforms are just too successful. You know, whether it's one run by Facebook, as Libra would be, or ones run by Tencent or Alibaba, as, as the big digital payment networks in China are, you have more and more money moving into effectively private hands. And central banks are concerned about the kinds of power that that would give tech groups. And so they're looking to stop the digital networks from becoming omnipotent in a digital currency world. So one of the ideas that's now under a lot of discussion, in fact, you know, roughly 80% of central banks are, are looking at it, is the idea that central banks themselves will launch digital currencies, a way for you to have direct access to a deposit account on the central bank's balance sheet that you would access via a mobile phone or, or via your computer.
0: And how do low or even negative interest rates play into all of this? I mean, why is it easier to have negative interest rates on an, a digital currency than a, than a normal one?
2: You know, Anybody who has a lot of money, any company who has a lot of money in bank accounts could effectively demand hard cash. Hard cash, by definition, has an interest rate of zero. Now, if physical cash is entirely eliminated, central banks would actually have Theoretically, the ability to program a negative interest rate into digital currency, it is a tantalizing prospect for some central bankers.
0: But on Money Talks last week, Ken Rogoff was arguing that central banks could implement negative rates without entirely eliminating cash.
3: We don't need to get rid of physical cash at all. In the very long run, physical cash, you know, it's going out of use. I certainly think phasing out large bills would be a good idea, but you don't even need to do that. What you need to do is establish a tax on redepositing large amounts of cash back into the central bank.
0: Do you agree with that, Simon? Or or would using digital currencies to implement negative rates still require ditching Paper money and coins altogether.
2: I mean, Dr. Rogoff is certainly right that there's pathways to to negative interest rates, but but there's also complexity involved. And I think so long as savers have other options, it, it makes it difficult for central banks to go deeply negative. You could have funds that become, you know, entirely gold backed or silver backed. There still are workarounds. And I think there's also a more fundamental question about what people's perception of money would be, say, if you knew that having your money in a bank account or holding the currency was going to lose you 3% every single year, that potentially would shake your faith in the monetary system and in the currency. So, you know, even in a digital currency world, it will still be a very big experiment and potentially a very risky one for central banks to undertake.
0: And beyond negative rates, Simon, what other capabilities could central bank digital currencies unlock? For example, could you imagine super targeted intervention, central banks able to top up individual accounts in a downturn, which sounds potentially very high impact, but also a little bit big brother? I mean, are people worried that all of this might give unelected central bankers too much power?
2: In the thought experiment, if you were to have, you know, every individual in a country would have a digital currency account with the central bank that would be linked to their social security number. And you would then have an ability for the central bank in the case of a downturn to look at whose digital currency accounts are running low and and directly transferring funds to them. It would just be a much more efficient way of dispersing cash than currently exists. you know. Likewise, some people have speculated that, for example, were there to be a natural disaster, the central bank could identify who is in the area and transferring money directly to them. And then also, just more broadly, central banks would have far greater supervisory powers for how money is being spent. China, which is is you know close to the forefront of, of the digital currency world, has talked about the fact that having a digital currency would be a tool in, in dealing with money laundering. So I think this is one more power that central banks would, would find themselves with, that certainly in democratic countries, a lot of people would be rather worried about.
0: And how close is any of this to actually happening? I mean, you say of central banks are at least thinking about digital currencies, but are only really close to implementing them?
2: So China is the closest. On a very limited test basis, it's already begun to implement its digital currency. Sweden is probably next in line. Uh, It'll be potentially launching an e-crona, again, on a very limited test basis within a year or so. Other countries are still very much studying the concept. Some, like America, in fact, are, are quite skeptical about it. And you know, even in China, physical cash is still very important for a large part of the population, especially for people in rural areas, especially for the elderly. You know, we're talking about a great technological marvel, the idea that you'd be able to have all currency fully being digital. And then you think about the ability of governments to, to manage well-functioning websites, whether it's unemployment insurance claims websites in America, track and trace apps in Britain. There's plenty of examples of government-designed technology not living up to its billing. The last thing that governments want to do is to migrate currency fully to the digital world and then find that the currency they've built is not fit for purpose. So it's it's something that's under discussion and under study, but it's it's not happening tomorrow. It's, it's going to take years before it really comes to fruition. I
0: think there very- of us worried about our computer safety might be quite relieved about that, Simon. Simon Rabinovich, thank you very much.
2: My pleasure, Simon. Thank you.
0: And that's all for this episode of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Simon Long. In London, this is The Economist.
3: only from rustolium